0: Welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I write a blog called Unpickled, where I tell my uh, life in recovery stories right from day one, which is almost six years ago. Um, I tell my story there, and then I invite you to tell your story here. And the question I get asked, why do we call it the Bubble Hour? Well, the idea is that to support sobriety, we build like a bubble of safety around ourselves, and we fill it with our thoughts and our ideas and the people and resources and mantras and so on that help us feel strong and help keep us on track. So if you're listening in your car, that's your bubble. If you're listening on headphones while you walk your dog, that's your bubble. And if you're in the closet, in the fetal position, in between courses of a family function, that is your bubble. Protect it and fill it with good things. So this podcast is something you can take with you into that bubble so that you have the voices of people who speak your language, who have stories that can give you insight and inspiration and encouragement. And on this episode, you'll meet Sasha Tazi, a woman in recovery who walks the talk and lives her recovery in every aspect of her life. And as well, she helps others do the same. Sasha, welcome to the Bubble Hour.
1: Thank you, Jean. It's so good to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, I'm glad you're here. I know you do a lot of cool stuff, and I'm really excited for you to just share about your life and recovery. But before we have you talk about what your life is like now, let's take a minute and just hear about sort of what got you here, why you're in recovery in the first place. Um,
2: Sure,
1: a little bit of my story. So, um, I... Uh, let's see, to start off, I guess I, um, like it was evident that I had a problem with drinking and kind of using drugs pretty much from the, from the moment it started. And so I was a teenager when I first kind of experimented with, um, with, uh, extracurriculars (laughs) probably like 15 14 15 and um i recognized you know i was the type of kid and adolescent that um was i guess to characterize my personality i was pretty shy and timid um a really thoughtful kid really extremely sensitive kid um Kind of obsessive and um, perfection driven and kind of like just driven in general, but um, I, when I, but very like unsure of myself and very scared of people and very um, awkward uncomfortable in social situations, and that included even, like, going to school. Um, like, I didn't want to go to school. I didn't want to be
2: um,
1: – I was so uncomfortable in my skin. And um, so I needed a buffer. And speaking of bubbles, actually, I felt <laughs> like I needed a bubble, and I didn't know how to create it um, myself so when i found drinking for the first time when i sipped alcohol i like immediately loved it because it gave me the illusion of like safety and confidence um it brought that to me right away it was like i thought to myself like i found i found what i need this is like going to be the thing that i that helps me and like you know, makes me feel, makes the um, noise in my head get quiet, helps me talk to guys, helps me make friends, helps me feel okay. Like, I even, you know, I remember, like, not thinking much, very highly of myself, even though I was a great student. I was um, captain of tennis and a varsity cross country runner, and I was, like, I had all these, you know, accomplishments under myself, but I, I never, I, I was so insecure, and I felt my, my self-esteem was so low, but when I drank, all of that went away. And, like, I would look in the mirror at a party, I would go to the bathroom, look in the mirror, and I would feel pretty, and I would feel good about myself, and I would walk with confidence that, that I just could not seem to access without it. So I, I think that there was a little bit of probably like self medication going on in terms of like I had a lot of anxiety and kind of negative self talk and the way that I dealt with that was I found when I found um alcohol and saw what it could do for me, I I used it for to to kind of like um medicate those issues and but with that being said i was also going to a therapist i was already seeing a therapist when i was a teenager for depression and anxiety and i i knew that those problems existed but i i still um i still kind of like went the route of i got i got introduced to alcohol and drugs and then went that route and when I was nineteen i um got introduced to cocaine, and I loved that <laughs> and and i it was like love at first snort and I um just ran with it like i was so I guess I would describe myself drinking wise drug use wise as like an all or nothing, so I never got to a point where I abused anything on a daily basis um, I would I would go out and party and use alcohol and drugs as much as I as I could and then I would like then then I would like take two days off and it would just be a cycle I was like a binge shrinker and for a long time this actually kept me from realizing it was a problem because I, what I thought of alcoholism, what I knew was, was um, somebody that drinks every day. And right. I did not understand that you could, like, have a problem that you couldn't control if it wasn't, if it didn't look like that. So, like, it didn't matter that when I drank. I could not. I could not control myself. And I I had to have. It became... Such an obsession, like obsession, obsession of the mind, as as we hear, um, and I just wanted as much as possible, as soon as possible, and and I couldn't control that. I couldn't turn it off, and I was really pretty reckless. And I experienced a personality change where, like, people kind of knew me as like the person. I had an alter ego as a drinker and they were like, Wait, is this Sasha or is this Zoe? My friends would call me Zoe as soon as I had a sip of alcohol because there was like this change that took place. Like I almost became like this other this other personality where that was so different from my my sober personality that it was <laughs> this the stark contrast of it was just like shocking. And I know that, you know, uh, you know, it's not uncommon in in hearing people's drink, uh, drug, drink and drug stories to hear about the reckless, outrageous things that they did. Um, and so, it's not uncommon necessarily. But the the weird thing was that I was like the polar opposite when I was sober, and so so I didn't understand what was what was happening, and I, like this whole other person would come out of me and like it was almost like a monster like it wasn't a good person so (laughs) the next day like the next day after any time that I drank I would just wake up with like and sometimes I'd wake up in a stranger's bed so many times I wake up in a stranger's bed and um so there was shame there was definitely like sexual shame but but there there was such a huge amount of shame for just how i acted how i i would wake up with like a shame over like i didn't even know if it was a hangover from being from feeling physically ill or just like a mental hangover from like oh my god i want to die because i cannot believe um the things that I did, people would tell me, they would fill in the stories and I just would be, I would just be horrified. Like, and I didn't remember, I blacked out like 90% of the time. So I would have like asked people about my friends about like, what happened last night? And they'd be like, Oh, you did this, you said this. And I would just be like, sitting there in disbelief. And But I couldn't stop it from happening the next time I went out and drank. Like, I couldn't ever get a hold on it, even though I'd be like, okay, this time it won't happen. This time I'll have control over myself. This time I won't drink as much. But it never really happened that way. Maybe one out of ten times, like, I would be able to stop at three drinks. But nine out of ten times, I was, like... I was like a kind of drinking like I had a death wish and and he mm. be, almost became like a manic person um and and of course, the cocaine use, like only sped that up, <laughs> nobody kind no sped that up of just feeling like an invincible person and um. And so, yeah, I when I was 20, I um, my family staged an intervention for me. And my work I was working at a restaurant. And I was taking a break up from college, and I was in the restaurant industry. And it really lent itself well to my lifestyle. So all my friends were, you know, the same as me, except somehow I was. Like I was worse, but now like I got singled out. So that might tell you something. If I was surrounded by people that were abusing alcohol and drugs, but like I was the one that was called out. Like my work called my pa- my my mom and or my sister, and my sister called my mom, and they kind of staged an intervention. And at that time, I was twenty years old, and um. They it, it I guess what happened was I handed over my phone and I took two weeks off of work and I stayed with my family and um it, like I stopped using Coke after that, and then. I went to twelve three twelve step meetings where I was living um a small beach town is where I was living at the time and i went to I checked out three twelve step meetings and um I didn't identify, and it was a lot of old people, and I felt like I was twenty years old and like this is what this is what college age kids do. Like, this has to just be a phase, and I'm way too young. I'm not even legally al- allowed to drink, so I'm way too <laughs> young to, like, label myself an alcoholic and have to quit drinking for the rest of my life when everybody my age does this. This isn't fair. Like, what the hell? And so, so I, I didn't get the message, and I continue to drink um, for six more years. And then when I was 26, I was so, like, I was so, like, suffocated by shame um, because six more years of, like, that same behavior, the same stuff happening, lots of memory loss because of the blackout. And um, it was just, it was keeping me from reaching goals, and it, I mean, I i was sitting in my therapist's office one day, and she said, um, she gave me an A pamphlet, and I think that the timing of it was just right at that time, and I also was not, like, on defense, and I really liked, I particularly liked the therapist. I felt a bond with her. I felt safe. I felt like she had my best interests. Mm.
2: Um,
1: she, was, she was a really, really kind, smart, gentle um, woman who, like, constantly used metaphors, and I just loved that. Like, because she helped me understand so many things that way that I wasn't, that I didn't previously understand. And so when she gave me the pamphlet, I was like, uh, I was like, okay, I'll just go. I'll just check out a meeting. And this time, six years later, um, I just kept going. And I only went to, like, one meeting a week. And it was the Friday night meeting. It was a speaker's meeting, so it was right on campus because I was in school. I was finishing my undergrad degree um, late, and I it was right in a, in a room that I had a class in. So it was right, like, very convenient, and I would go every Friday night and listen to these people talk. The reason I picked this meeting, I think, well, I think it was, kind of, it just worked out this way, but I was stoked that I wouldn't have to talk. To, like, there was not sharing, really. There there were people talked before and after, they socialized, but it was, it was a total speaker meeting, so the speaker shared their entire story, and then the meeting was, like, over, or maybe there was an opportunity for a few volunteered shares, but I can't remember, but I was drawn to the fact that I wouldn't be, like, needing to talk um, necessarily. So I really liked going because I liked listening to these people, Mm -hmm. like, talk so honestly and, like, you know, just I've always been interested. I'm a psychology major. Like, I've always been interested and fascinated by, like, why we do the things that we do. And so just from a of a perspective of like humanity, I got to hear somebody like tell their life story. And <laughs> I love, I liked that so much. Like I was so, it was something I really needed. I needed like honesty and I needed realness and I needed, um, it was so healing for me to just like go there and listen. And at, you know, during that time, it kept me sober. Um, know it's not that way for a lot of people, but I, I was also using like food. Um, when I, when I quit drinking, I quit cigarettes three months after that. And then, so I was 26. I just turned 26. I quit drinking September 2nd. And then December 17th, I quit smoking cigarettes. And I was like, a pretty heavy smoker, like a pack a day. I mean, it didn't go with my image, so there was so much shame with that too, but that's (laughs) how I smoked. And, like, so when I quit both those things and I was, like, in school and I was kind of still... I I was, like, isolating in terms of, like, spending time with friends and all that. And so I started using food a little bit more um, to like quench any anxiety that I had or comfort me when I was lonely or so, so I want to, I want to mention that only because I didn't get into the program, the AA program and quit shrinking and, um, and I, I mean, okay. So I, I know that it, when we have these addictive tendencies, like, it's not realistic probably to think that you can quit them all at once. But I just want to say, I wanted to mention it just because, like, um, I didn't feel sober. So I I was sober from drinking, but, like, I felt I was still kind of numbing out with food, and I was Mm -hmm. not – I was not really emotionally sober, so I, I just kind of feel the need to be clear about that, and um, and I didn't really, like, uh, I just kind of had one foot out the door. Like, I didn't know how long I was going to, like, stick with the not drinking thing, and, like, I kind of just, that's what I called it, and I didn't tell really many people that I was doing it, and I was, like, just like I know I keep bringing up the word shame but I had a lot of shame like I had a lot Mm -hmm. of shame about even just getting sober because why did I have a problem in the first place and I don't want to be sober like I don't want to be considered I mean I don't have the same I didn't have the understanding that I have now of course five years later I have a much different view on it and how wonderful it is and how it's like not something to hide but Then I felt like I still had to hide, like I had to hide the fact that I don't, wasn't drinking and I had no friends that didn't drink and I didn't know how to make new friends and like I just, um, it was a really tough transition and I didn't, you know, because I was kind of going to meetings, so the AA way is like to get a sponsor and I didn't, I didn't get one. I I didn't get one until I was 10 months in because I just, because of my shyness probably primarily, but then also because um, I wasn't like committed. Like I didn't think I was going to stick around. So I didn't really (laughs) want to like, I didn't really want to like, you know, I had one foot out the door. So I was kind of waiting to see when I would like get bored of it. Like (laughs) just (laughs) out and just, you know, like, see you guys. I'm actually going to be a normal drinker. <laughs> um, but that didn't happen and thank God that it didn't happen because I'm, I'm I, I wouldn't I I mean I'm on the other side now sort of, the other side of that bridge and I, I never would have known what I was missing and I'm I'm um, really glad that I was kind of too naive and uh, and and sort of oblivious to like to, to just keep going without knowing what I was doing or like what <laughs> my intention was or what my goal was or like nobody like put any kind of ultimatum on me like I it didn't necessarily have a rock bottom as much as just knowing that like what I was doing was not in line with who I wanted to be and so that it was sort of this dull aching every day. I knew, and every day that I woke up, I was covered in shame. And I, I, I think, pro, I think maybe that I would have like killed myself or something if I just kept going on like that. Like, I mean, I, I've had mood problems and depression problems, so I think it. Only would have been a matter of time had I just, like, decided to just, like, yeah, this isn't getting better. I don't know what to do about it, so I'm just going to peace out. And, like, I did I, – so, when I was 17 and I was in, a senior in high school, I actually had a suicide attempt. So, this wasn't, like – and it was totally not drug-related, not alcohol-related. I just – um had things going on in my life at that time, and um mental challenges that I didn't understand, and I thought that was the solution so um so my point in bringing that up is that like it wouldn't have been far off for me to just like decide to decide to go one day because of the um, overwhelming shame and and helplessness of, like, not knowing how to, why, why I couldn't be normal, but also, like, not knowing how to live um, mm. and just kind of feeling, like, so trapped. That, like, yeah. It might have seemed like a good... Option had I not started on the journey to um, becoming, you know, who I was meant to be, and like being fully, kind of fully expressing myself in in who I'm meant to be. So yeah,
0: it's. I hear you say that. Um, I heard you say earlier that you partied like you had a death wish, and. I so it's almost like it, it kind of resonated, right? I mean, I almost contend that any of us, when we're drinking to escape our life, we are kind of opening the door to to a slow suicide, you know? I mean, there's mm-hmm. some part of us that doesn't want to live. If we want to check out, even just numb out of our life, we don't want to fully live. So I I kind of feel like active addiction is really like... It's not too far from, from being suicidal, really. It's, it's more like a passive kind of, I don't really care what happens oh. to me, kind of disengagement in
1: oh, life. Totally. Um,
0: and that's recovery brings us back to where we start living and caring about our life again. And it breaks my heart, though, to hear of a young woman like hurting so much, even though I think all of us can relate to feeling pretty awful as teenagers and knowing what that feels like to want to hide or escape through whatever means. And it just makes me so sad for you. I'm curious. I took a ton of notes while you were talking because there's so many things. I was like, oh, I got to ask her
2: this. I got to ask her that.
0: So (laughs) uh, what I'm curious about, first of all, intervention at age 20. So you were saying that you had like all these shame kind of hangovers or the shame over. And when when your family did an intervention for you, did you feel was there some part of you that felt relief of like, oh good, because I'm tired of this shame? Or what did it feel like at that time? Were you angry or were you open to it? Or how did you feel?
1: Um, I was angry. I it was a very informal intervention. So like just two two of my sisters were there and my mom and I have I have, I'm one of six so I'm in a big family and like the other my other siblings and my dad I don't even think knew about it so it felt um it felt kind of like not real like oh this isn't like a real intervention there's no interventionist yeah. and like I there's no counselor and like You guys aren't even sending me to rehab. You're just, like, keeping me locked in your house without a phone. So I don't understand. There was not a lot of knowledge of what addiction was, not from my perspective and not from theirs or kind of how to handle it and any, like, education, awareness. So I felt angry because I felt like I was being called out even though I felt there was a lot of hypocrisy, like, uh, mm-hmm. like because the people that I partied with are like some of the people that called me out. And um, then I also felt really embarrassed, like, oh, my God, I, they found out, and I thought I was hiding it. And I'm such a, you know, I thought I was being so sneaky, and, like, everyone kind of knew all along. Right. <laughs> so I felt, like, kind of, like, embarrassed. I don't know, like just humiliated like I I didn't like having attention even though even though that's a contradiction too because I was also starving for attention so right. I, but I was very embarrassed to have like the lights turned on me and Sasha you have a problem because when I got to the house um, I got tricked into going to my mom's house and I thought that something happened with my Nana. Like, I had no clue. I was not clued in at all to, oh, my God, maybe they know, and I'm going to get, you know, I'm going to get caught. I, I thought that, you know, my, my Nana passed away, and, like, they wanted to tell me, you know, like, in a family environment. So I got there, and I was like, Mom, what happened? And she starts crying. And she's my mom's a very gentle person and like beautiful soul. She so she's crying and I'm like, "Mom, what is it? Is it Nana?" She's like, "No, it's you." And I was like, "What are you talking about?" Me? <laughs> she's like, "It's you, Sasha. Like you're in trouble." And I just then I was like, "Oh shit!" <laughs> 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 um, and I just like. I don't know. I was like, uh-oh, the jig is up. And I felt like I didn't want to fight back. I mean, I did surrender in the sense that, like, I didn't go running. I didn't, I didn't like, put up a big fight and yell and scream and leave the house. I just kind of, like, gave her a hug and listened to them talk and then, and then went to bed. And I slept so much because I was, like, withdrawing a little bit from, um, the, the, the speed. And so I was like sweating a lot and I was just sleeping and sweating and like, I actually felt, I felt, I I think when you said, did you feel relief? I think I, I did feel a little bit of relief, um, to know that like, that they knew and that I don't need to, um, I don't know there was a relief in like being found out, even though I was angry there was there was also a sense of like okay i I can't do this anymore i gotta I gotta do something else, and I'm safe here, and like I can sleep and I can rest and I went and got my job back. I talked to them, so it was like it was a humbling experience, and then I ended up thanking them for you know. Reaching out to my mom, they—they they were my my employers could have been a lot more cruel about it, and they weren't. And they were they they cared about me, and so they were kind of like angels on my path.
2: Hmm.
0: And you knew that at the time, even though you didn't stay with sobriety, like you kind of. It sounds like you you knew it was the right thing, but you weren't ready for it. Do you think that's fair to say?
1: yeah I do 'cause yeah i think I think I knew i I think that I knew that it was the right thing, but I wasn't ready to like make the sacrifices, and I wasn't ready to really accept it and come to terms with it, so I just pretended I didn't know and and the other thing is that like I pretty much gave up Coke, so I kind of felt like. Well, I can drink. I just can't do coke because I go, right. yeah. I'm like insane. So, like, as long as I'm, I actually didn't realize like my pa- I didn't realize my my powerlessness over alcohol. I thought that getting cocaine out of the equation would would help. Like, I I didn't really think that they were one and the same. Like I mm-hmm. like I do now. I kind of thought, yeah. like, alcohol is, like, I mean, I understand doing, like, you know, coke or e- other drugs that are illegal, but, like, alcohol is, you know, I, I can handle myself with alcohol. Like, I need to be able to, but so there was still denial, and, you know, denial is a really thick fog, and I right. was, my ju- my judgment was clouded by it.
0: I think harm harm reduction like really that's it was like a 6 year harm reduction plan right
1: <laughs> like you
0: got the drugs out at least and then and then in yeah. time it was like okay they weren't the only problem like what I what I'm wondering is if is if um getting sober at 26 really couldn't have happened if not for your experience at, at 20 so those like even though in some ways, you know, it like you didn't fully get sober at twenty, it like laid the foundation for your sobriety to come and for the healing that. And um, like in light of that, I guess what I'm wondering your perspective on now is like, what would you say to family members who have a person or a young person or anyone in their life that they care about about approaching them and doing but some kind of like a formal intervention or an informal intervention, like just to know that even if it doesn't turn out exactly the way they hope, it still can be quite a healing thing in their life. Um, do you have any advice for anybody in that position?
1: Well, first of all, I totally agree with what you said. And I think that I, I don't think it was like a vain attempt. I think it was, it planted the seed and it that it did set the foundation in a way like and i i I have actually acknowledged that in um something that I wrote because it was it it was um crucial i think to my finally coming to the realization six years later. I think that that was just like a prerequisite almost, and I think that um I think that, you know, a few things that would have helped me at that time, being as young as I was, would, would, would be to hear that um, if it's causing problems in your life, it's probably a good thing to stop. And it's probably for a reason. Like, I questioned it. And I was so obsessed with like, well, I need, like, I need to hit a rock bottom, or I need to, um, really be really really bad. And the the fact of the matter is that there's so many different ways that there's so there's so many different faces of this on the spectrum of addiction, and to just like. Be honest with yourself about if it's causing you problems and it's keeping you from living your best life and being who you know you're meant to be, why wouldn't you want that to start as soon as possible? Like, why wouldn't you want your best life to start as soon as possible if that's the, the block and that's what's in the way and that's what's causing all these problems in your life, and people are telling you you have a problem, and you keep finding yourself in trouble, and there's just you cannot be too young to get this toxic poison out of your life, like and um, so Demi Lovato, she's a singer and an actress, really talented young woman, she's 25 now, and she got sober when she She's been sober for five years, so when she was 20, but I think 1920, so I might have some of the facts mixed up. But overall, she got sober when she was 19 or 20 and has maintained sobriety. And she went to rehab, and she had eating disorder, self-harm, bipolar, and addiction. And she's a voice for young people today to – to show them that, like, that it's possible to turn your life around and it's possible to do it as soon as you realize there's a problem, not needing to wait until things get worse or or wait for anything. Like, because um, I hear that a lot even as a coach. Like, my life's not that bad. Like, I haven't lost my job. I haven't lost my, my kids. I haven't... Um, been to jail, I don't, you know, it's not that yeah. bad, but, right. but how do you define... Or it's just the alcohol. Everything else is great. It's
0: just the alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so um, I think that it does go back to kind of being in denial, though, and not wanting to admit that it's a problem because nobody wants this to be a problem, but I think that it, it just keeping in mind that like you could save yourself so much grief by um, mm-hmm. by like addressing it as soon as you mm-hmm. acknowledge that it's a problem like it, mm-hmm. you'll only be better off for it and and um you know young people like uh, when i go to so I still go to twelve step and I I go to a lot of meetings where there's older people, and I, I love them. Um, I love all the whole variety of meetings that I find, but very often um, they come up to me after and say, I wish I got sober when I was your age. And they're almost envious because um, because they could have had a much more peaceful, happier Life, quality of life. Had they, um, had they gotten it sooner? And uh, what I say to them is like, well, you got it now, you know. And some people never get it ever, and they never get to experience life for what it is. And so, so I mean, we all come on different timelines, and it's useless to compare. But, but for the young people that are struggling with addiction, um, it's just, it's really a gift to be given, to be given, introduced to recovery in any way when you're young so that you can have, you know, a greater chance to live a a happy and long life um, without Mm
0: -hmm. it. I love how you frame it as being your best life and a full life because I think a lot of us think like well my life is going to be over my fun is going to be over when I quit drinking and it's going to be like a sad crabby life to be sober and what you don't realize is that yeah you're you're not having alcohol anymore but with that comes the healing where you don't really need it anymore. You start actually enjoying life and learning how to live. So it doesn't hurt. And it doesn't like it becomes a life that you want to participate in instead of kind of avoid. And um like that is a revelation, I think for a lot of people, don't you think that, that they could enjoy their life without alcohol, that they're not just going to be sad loser forever, that that's not the option to this kind of like party life or this out of control being lifestyle that, that it's like, it's healing. And then you get to be like, you get that happiness that you were trying to find with drugs and alcohol and
2: food and sex. Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm
1: It's a, it's kind of like uh, ironic because what we were chasing the whole time with, with all the substances is what we find in recovery, and it's like, oh, <laughs> yeah, I got it wrong, and so um, I don't know. It's just, it's interesting because we actually get to have more fun I mean yeah and I don't blame people for thinking that because of the way our society sensationalizes alcohol and drinking and drinks and happy hour and I don't so it's like kind of the messages the subliminal messages of that we need it we need it to relax we need it after a long day we need it to have sex we need it for everything is is such a part of our culture so but we're undoing that right now we're, we're undoing that currently and the truth is is that you are more connected and um, like I am more connected and authentic and true and have more fun and my feelings are deeper um, without without using anything so it's like, I didn't even know that it was like this, but it's crazy that like, if I even had, like, I don't want to drink. Like I don't want to go back to feeling manufactured things and not being true to myself. It doesn't feel good.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You're like, it's not like you're less than without it. You're fuller than in its absence. Um, so you really talked a lot about, like, your Jekyll and Hyde, you know, <laughs> Sasha and yeah. Zoe, like, yeah. and you you mentioned, <laughs> like, your image, that, like, smoking didn't fit your image because you kind of had a good girl image, but then you also had a another side to you. And <clears throat> that sort of do. Du, oh, I can't say it, du, duplic, duplicity, um, <laughs> <laughs> the two-sidedness. <laughs> Um I think that strikes a lot of us in in um that find ourselves in addiction because we sort of go back and forth between these two versions of ourselves, and neither of them are true, and it's like we grind our gears you know in between, and that for me, like sobriety in order to really heal, and like you talked about having a lot of other um, a lot of other symptoms of of having a lack of inner peace, you know, like it comes out in a lot of other ways to other behaviors, eating or emotional or um, self-harm or there's all these ways that we, that symptomize that we're not okay with ourselves, and as we start to heal that in recovery, those things start to go away. So what I'm wondering is if you if you feel more authentic now, if you feel really grounded in who you are, and is that somewhere in between the two, or did you land more firmly on one side of your identity or the other?
1: The question. I um. <laughs> who are you? About, like Yeah, it's really funny because I think I'll, I heard someone else say one time that addiction is is or all. I think it was Glennon. Glennon that said all problems are identity problems. Mm-hmm. And not knowing who we really are. Like mm-hmm. everything's an identity crisis. Um, and I have to say that. I mean, I think I landed somewhere in the middle, and I'm so much more at peace today, of course. I mean, um, it doesn't it, – it's its immeasurable compared to the lack of peace that I felt um, when I was constantly, like, just in in the throes of – uh, not able to get out of my own way and of course I still feel like I have lots of feelings all the time and I get I, I experience the, the gamut of feelings um, so I feel pain and I feel sad and I feel um, I feel um, guilt and I feel sometimes I feel helpless and but I also feel joy and I feel confident and I feel empowered so, like, I just feel like I don't know how to answer the Jekyll or Hyde thing. I think both of them were um, constructs that don't really. Uh, I'm just a different. I'm different now. I mean, they they obviously are like a part of me. Like I don't I don't shun them off, and I'm mm-hmm. still. I still have some of my childhood personality, you know, characteristics. But I've just grown into myself, like, um, and and become more of, I mean, I know, become more of, like, who I really am inside, like, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. kind of just being true to that, like, and um, so... I don't know. I mean, I'm still a work in progress and but I'm I'm really like happy with myself today and like kind of I have peace in my heart and um, my soul that I that I didn't have before and of course like I still get restless and I still experience lots of stress sometimes and that's not like that, yeah, that doesn't go away but it's like Overall, and at the end of the day, I have, like, I ha- I'm i at peace with myself. Like, I-, I lay my head on the pillow with, like, a clean conscience, and mm. I feel like I'm a good person, and I cherish my relationships, and I feel grateful, and, like, um, I-, I-, I didn't really know what gratitude was. Yeah. seriously, I, I didn't know what gratitude was. I thought that, like, I was so used to looking at the negative side that I did like, I couldn't tell you what, I could tell you the definition maybe, but I couldn't tell you what gratitude was from a personal experience. And, like, now, like, I use it as an antidepressant. Like, I write gratitude lists just so that I stay out of um well, because it's a beautiful thing to practice, but it helps me stay out of, like, reverting back to seeing what's not good or seeing lack or whatever. Like, I kind of feel like, um, but I couldn't experience it before. Like, my heart is yeah. not open. My, it yeah. was not open. And, like, I, I feel so much more open now. I can, I don't know, just, like, the work that we do to recover kind of, like, helps us recover ourselves, like, who we are. Because we didn't, I mean, I didn't know. I didn't know who I was. So I just was kind of guessing.
0: <laughs> right. Um There's actually the way that you talk about it, it reminds me of some work that my therapist um, told me to go and look up, which I have found really useful. And um, it is um, a kind of psychotherapy developed by a guy named Richard Schwartz, and he talks about internal family systems, which is sort of all the parts that we have inside of ourselves. And that's what you're talking about, right? You had your good girl part and your people pleaser part and the bad girl part and like – But his work is really interesting because it says, yeah, we have all those parts, they develop for a reason, but we always have our self, like we always have our highest self is always in there too. Mm
2: -hmm. And as we heal,
0: we stop utilizing all those other parts and we spend more and more time in our highest self. Mm -hmm. And like you say, like those parts don't go away and we don't hate them or not, like we don't resent them. We just sort of know they were there. For a reason, but we don't need them anymore. And we don't need those extreme behaviors. We're just like, we're really ourselves. We really land in who we are. And we learn that that's a safe place to be, that we can do anything from there. And for me, that was really a healing way to understand that I didn't have to, it helped. For me, heal some of the shame and guilt from just some of the dumb things I'd done as a young person or as an adult, or you know, that I couldn't understand. Like you said that too. Like I did these things and I didn't know why, and um, that was really me too. And it because like there's a part of us that says I'm going to keep you safe right now by going off the rails. I'm going to you know you you need to have fun or whatever whatever your brain is telling you you need you know, and um, and it's you know it's it's because some part of us thought we needed that. And, um, we like, we have to, when we let go of that shame, we can start to heal. So I love that guy of Schwartz is the name internal family systems. It, for me, that was a great concept to grasp onto because becoming whole is really just the key to the happiness that we all are looking for. Um, we have a couple other things I want to touch on before we run out of time. Gosh, this hour is no. flying by, isn't it? I know. And you were so yeah. nervous, <laughs> and you didn't need to I be know. because, uh, you know, as when we're when we're telling the truth, it becomes timeless. The clock doesn't even matter, um, except that we have to. It, it only it matters to me because I'm looking at it on the studio, and it tells me when <laughs> I'm going to run out of time. <laughs> um, but I want to talk a little bit about yoga for twelve steps recovery what is that tell me about that
1: okay so it's really cool it's um it was developed by mickey myers this woman in recovery who um created it based on like the idea that the issues live in our tissues and you know that that whole idea of trauma is inside ourselves and like the body keeps score type of thing and yeah so Y12SR is this style that blends the wisdom of yoga with the practicality of the 12 steps to to offer this kind of like a, a complete healing experience for for those who go to the class. And so um, the postures of yoga help heal our physical body. and uh, And the inclusive community and vulnerability and honesty of the sharing circle part of a uh, Y12SR meeting helps heal our mind and spirit. And they all kind of work together. I mean, speaking of, like, integration, it's a beautiful integration of our mind, body, spirit, all kind of in one in, in one experience. What it is is, like, the asana, the, the yoga posture, and it's pretty gentle and it's, like, um, themed on some principle of recovery, like letting go or or um, acceptance or grace or surrender, right? And then, and then the meeting part is really just um, a chance for everyone there to, like, Share their truth, and um, so I got certified in it after I met Nikki at a recovery conference um, and it's it's really wonderful thing to be delivering to people because what I've noticed is that they don't um they don't even realize what they were in for and they like leave so happy like they because they don't really know what it is they're just like oh, i don't know what this yoga class is but i'm going to try it and <laughs> um it also because of its inclusive nature like it, it welcomes all what she said welcome to all is so any anonymous any addiction so it it um It's open to everybody, and I like So that would include –
0: just let me pause you for a minute. That would include alcohol addiction, drug addiction, food addiction, gambling addiction, sex addiction, love addiction. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, and, like, Al-Anon, codependent, like, you know, um, relationship addiction, those kind of the people that would be going to Al-Anon, that it includes includes anyone, like – all right. and it's actually, like, kind of an open meeting in, the, in terms of, like, you can identify as that, and you don't have to also. You can just come.
0: That sounds great. I think I really contend that everybody can benefit from recovery, even if you don't have an obvious A, as you say, <laughs> um, that we all sort of have big and or small ways that we have maladaptive coping strategies that we're not even aware of, you know? We might just think yeah. it's normal to feel anxiety or stress, and what we don't realize is it's because we've we've been maybe taught or adopted some some unhealthy patterns that aren't serving us well. And recovery just kind of forces us to like take a look at the things we believe are true that don't have to be. They're really more um, coping skills that we've we've learned, you know, that mm-hmm. we we think are true, but if we really if we just ask ourselves that, is that really true? Like, am I really ugly? Am I really, do people really not like me or, you know, am I really in charge of the universe? Does the weight of the world really rest on my shoulder? Is that really true? Um, Oh, what a relief to go somewhere where we can just be honest and, and hear the truth. It sounds lovely. I've never been to uh, Yoga for 12 Step recovery before, but oh, I would love to. Hopefully, hopefully I can find one someday in my area to, to visit. Yeah. And you're a lover of meditation. How does meditation help people in recovery? Um, uh,
1: well, I think that it's crucial, especially for people in recovery, because it um, allows it allows you to wash your thoughts without attaching to them. So it's kind of like the opposite of what we do in addiction, which is just mm-hmm. to like follow the, follow the impulse to use, follow the urge, follow the craving. So instead of that, we practice detaching. And so just sitting in meditation, watching my thoughts, and not not reacting, not following them, just letting them be there. And... um. It it's just a really good practice for people that are like used to living in panic mode, fight or flight mode. <laughs> uh-huh. um, it restores your, I mean, like biologically, scientifically speaking, it restores your central nervous system to operate properly and recalibrate, recalibrate the stress response so that our brains can actually function better and serve us better. So, There's a lot of like, I mean, there's a lot of science there. It's not, it's, but then also like the practical aspect of just noticing our thoughts and then we can carry that into our day of being mindful. Like, oh, my brain's telling me that I want, like, to go smoke a cigarette right now. Okay, well, it might want that, but I'm just gonna. Let it, let that thought be there, and wait until it passes, and not, you know, follow it and cling to it.
0: I love the way you describe that because, for me, um, the idea of being alone with my thoughts was terrifying. I mean, the mm-hmm. idea of meditating scared me because I really drank to silence my inner critic. I drank to silence anxiety and the quiet, the voices in my head, and uh, so the thought of just sitting with myself for an hour or 10 minutes or five minutes or 20 minutes sounded just really unpleasant to me. But the way you're presenting it is that it's not like you're sitting there and letting yourself be yelled at by the voices in your head. You're detaching from them and letting them float past you. So it's like you're, it's like it's like you're standing on a riverbank and they're going by, you know, and mm-hmm. it's and and oh, that doesn't scare me as much. The thought of that, um, I really for me, I really think I knew I was getting somewhere in my recovery when I could start to do something like yoga or just sit quietly or just lay in bed and maybe not fall asleep. Um and not be afraid of the voices and the visions and the thoughts and the guilt and the shame and all that stuff that was starting to come up. Um, So it's a really, I think it's a really great healing tool. Um, Is there anything special people need to do to meditate or like what, if someone wants to start, just try it. They don't even have to use something as big as saying like starting a meditation practice, but like, how would someone just try it on for size? Where would you start?
1: Well, I recommend that I, I always recommend keeping it simple to start something new, like very basic and just setting a timer for like five minutes and finding a quiet place to get comfortable and just sitting in silence quietly and breathing and letting, that, letting Matthew to practice honestly and um, for five minutes and like just to start and get get yourself introduced to it. I, I usually recommend a couple apps, especially to clients that want to do, like, guided meditation. So there's, there's so many different ways that you can do it, and I, I think that it's it's good to experiment and see what you like and see what works for you, and also, like, it changes. I mean, sometimes I used to do a lot of guided, and right now I'm doing a lot of, quiet so Mm -hmm. I I just kind of give myself the flexibility to like adjust adjust to what I need right now like not get so rigid with it um because I can do that pretty easily so I I it's just about feeling good and like getting that quiet time and um a, a good way to introduce it is just mindfulness so so being aware of what you're doing when you're doing it and, like, when you're taking a shower, for instance, being, being in the shower, like, focusing on the texture of the water and washing your hair and the smells and the scents and actually letting your mind be in that experience instead of, like, thinking about what are you going to do after the shower? What? you know, the, the mental. Right. (laughs) Right.
0: Um, We're in traffic before we're even in the car.
1: (laughs) Right. Exactly. Just, and you could do that with everything and it. Presence is, I mean, and I'm not, I'm not a master at it by any means, like, but I like to study it and I like to constantly be improving. And presence is like the opposite of anxiety. It's the opposite of, I mean, so many of our kind of neurotic tendencies today can be like combated with um, just being present.
0: We are running out of time really quickly So
1: I want to mention
0: I'm going to finally get to meet you In New York in May At the the She Recovers event I'm really excited about that We're both bloggers that are on the Sober Blogger team So we will be um, I think we're going to have like a corner A Sober Blogger corner where we'll get to meet People and say hi and there's an event On Friday where we get to meet readers and listeners So um, you and I Will see everyone there What else do you have coming up? in the next little while
1: I have a little um, a group coaching program online um, starting in April early April that is going to be focused on owning um, owning our power in relationships so um, we'll get into people pleasing and boundary setting and codependent habits controlling behaviors, toxic ties, and um, fog, which is acronym for fear, obligation, and guilt. So a a lot of that stuff, a lot of feelings and a lot of what our behaviors are in relationships and how we give away our power. So um, I'm really, really excited because it's like what... What I'm most interested in right now, and has been for a while, and what the bulk of my personal work has been most recently, um, and so I'm offering that on a in in a group, and I'm I'm very excited. So if you want to know more, you can just um, go on my website, SashaPTazi.com and and contact me, and I'm going to be and subscribe to my newsletter cause I'm going to be talking more about it and giving people a chance to sign up early. Um, and yeah, that's it.
0: Great. Well, I think we have covered a lot today, so I'm going to leave it with that. Sasha, thank you so much for being here and for sharing your story. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me. It was really lovely to like get to talk to you and you're so like, kind and you put me right at right at ease and I didn't feel nervous at all so oh, I think good. that was you <laughs> oh
0: yes must be <laughs> Yeah. well
1: I, I think, think it's it's
0: really is the power of of um telling our stories and knowing that that this is a safe place you know and that that our listeners are are um, we're all part of one family you know just the recovery world is really mm-hmm it's the biggest group hug that there is. It really is. So it's there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, parts that make this whole thing such a lovely enterprise. It really is something amazing. I'm glad you were here to be part of it. And I agree thank you and so if listeners want to reach you they can get in touch with you through your website which is sashaptazi.com and um, mm-hmm. they'll also find a link to that on on our website which is blogtalkradio.com slash bubble hour and um, listeners you can also email me uh, hour at gmail.com and i can forward any questions or comments you have on to Sasha as well. So thank you so much for being here and um, for for sharing everything with us. And um, I'm Jean from unpickledblog.com. And listeners, we just thank you so much for being here and um, for connecting and and making this what it is and for, for just a whole big family that we are just love every minute of it hearing the stories hearing your feedback and um and learning together is really what this is all about so thanks for letting us in your bubble today (laughs) and (laughs) sasha i'll see you in new york so everyone until next time in just a few months that's right so until Mm -hmm. next time everyone take good care
2: i